Amen. Thank you, Brian. Let's uh, let's pray together, and then we will dive into the Word of the Lord as we uh, consider what He has placed there for us. Father, we do thank you again for Your Word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us, the way that You show us how we should live. You help us understand Your will and the way that You are working in the world. And so, Father, over these next few minutes, I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom. Lord, we're coming to, to your throne room of grace, to your word, submitting ourselves before it, delighting in you and in your word. And we pray that you would move in us according to your will. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin, I have to tell you, I have a problem. I don't like things on my hands. Some of you guys may be like that. I hate having stuff on my hands. I don't like creams. I don't like food when it's on there. I hate barbecue, not because it doesn't taste good, but because it's so stinking messy. And I, this, I came to this realization the other day when Danielle and I were cooking dinner. And we were, she asked me to open up the salmon, and we had those individually wrapped salmon packages. She said, open them and put salt and pepper on both sides. I'm thinking, okay, not a big deal. So I start to cut it, and then I realize as soon as I touch the salmon with my hands, I've got the salmon goo all over my hands. I can't, therefore, reach my hand into the We have those salt dishes that you kind of have to sprinkle. I can't reaching in there and do it, and I just couldn't figure it out. I just couldn't get it, and I, and I found out that that night, so I would cut it open and place it on the thing, and then I'd go wash my hands because I didn't want to have any of that there, and, and then I'd come back and I'd do another, and i had washed again. I, I must have washed my hands four or five times before we got done with dinner. I just can't stand it. In fact, when I'm eating, I know I shouldn't eat French fries, but who doesn't love a good French fry? Nice and salty. But do you know that my, I'm so bad, maybe I have a condition, I don't know, I need to be analyzed. Every bite, I have to wipe my hands on a napkin because I can't stand having that salt on my fingers. It tastes so good, but I just can't stand it. And I think the bottom line is, I, you know, I just don't like, I don't, it's, and it's not even a germ thing. I mean, granted, I don't want to cross-contaminate foods because that'd be bad. Then people get sick. But I'm not germophobic. I just don't like that texture. Maybe I have a problem. Oh, thank you, Steve. Yes, probably is a little bit obsessive-compulsive. <laughs> but, so I'll, I'll readily admit it, I have a problem. But I am not alone. Today, as we consider the Gospel of John, we're going to consider this first miracle or or the first sign that happened at a wedding. And while it may not have been readily apparent as Brian was reading through that, it has to do with hand washing. It relates. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So let me encourage you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of John, chapter 2. There will be some things on the slide. But I want to just encourage you to be looking in your, in your Bibles, kind of seeing what, what is written there. Make notes there. I, I write up, I mark up my Bible a lot. But you've noticed, you, you might notice in your outlines we've got a lot of space just so you can take some, some extra notes or draw some extra pictures. Um, however, you might prefer to do that. But as we did last week, I want to walk through this little 
pericope, this little section of scripture, verse by verse, just so we can kind of process through this. And then we'll conclude with a couple of applications. So if you want to take notes, the first blank in your outline is, is some reflections on this passage. And as we dive in, so if you remember, we started the book of John about a month ago. and we, we began with the end in mind, right? Stephen Covey would be so happy with us. We started with the very end and we looked at all the signs that Jesus did. And then we jumped into the prologue. We got a chance to look at what, what John is trying to communicate through his book as he opens up almost like that Star Wars scroll that happens to be, happened, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far. Well, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So then we got a chance to not only see Jesus as John the Apostle wants us to understand, but then we get to see Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. And now as we turn the page into chapter 2, we're turning the page into what some commentators and and theologians call the book of signs, which really covers chapters 2 through 12 of the book. These are, these are the places where we see all of Jesus' signs. It's a place where we get to look and see all of the things that he's going to do. And then those last three chap, last about six or seven chapters is the book of glory, chapters 13 to 21, as Jesus reveals his divinity. He reveals his, who he is to his disciples, and we really get a chance to see his heart in that. But as we begin, if you look in your Bibles, this section, the book of signs begins with chapter two, verses one and two. And it says on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so you you might, there's not a lot to notice here. We have this wedding and it happened to be three days after the events that happened before, which was the calling of Philip and Nathaniel. And then we come to the problem. You know, any good narrative is going to have that that prelude. It's going to have that kind of introduction. And now we get to the conflict. Now we get to the the part of the tension in the story. And it happens so early. And and verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, several commentators have, have, have noted, they said Mary's awareness of this seems to indicate that she probably was good friends with the people who were involved in the wedding. And she may have had a part in the catering. But I think it's important for us to understand weddings in their context. We had a a wedding here yesterday. One of the kids who was in the youth group, uh, you know, years ago, she got married um, here. And it was a very simple wedding. In fact, Rick was commenting earlier. He's like, that was the simplest wedding I've ever seen. We were here start to finish about 40 minutes. We went out afterwards, had a nice reception. It was a, it was a good, just super simple. And they've flown back to Colorado where he's a doctor and she's a nurse. But a Jewish wedding in the first century could last seven days. How would you like that? So you have all these food provisions, all these drink provisions, all these things to manage. And, and so if you run out of food, or in this case, if you run out of wine, not only have you not thought well enough to, think, to plan ahead, but now you've potentially brought shame on your family. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. It's not like us where, well, we'll just do what's in our budget. There's this, and it's not that I think people were trying to be overboard, but there's this manner in which if you can't plan for that, then there would be a blot on your family. And it's not the bride's family in that case, it's the groom's family. 
And so Mary was approaching Jesus with this concern, and it's unclear exactly what she was expecting him to do or what she even believed that he would do. She just comes to him and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And so in verse 4, Jesus replies, he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when you read that in your Bibles, is your first reaction like my reaction? Jesus, where's the respect, man? Honor your father and mother. It is in your, your word. And I, and I got to tell you, one of the challenges of translations is that the word that we get translated woman isn't as distant as our word woman means. Because this is the same word that Jesus used two chapters later when he's talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. It's the same chapter, same um, word he uses to talk to the woman who was caught in in adultery. It's the same word he uses for his mom when he's on the cross. And he says, woman, behold your son. He kind of gives her to John and John to her so that they might take care of her. And then... It's also the same word that he uses with Mary Magdalene in the garden in chapter 20. What is this word? What's with this word? And so several of the translators have said woman is just not a great word for us. Some translations say dear woman, except it's not quite a term of endearment. It's not an intimate kind of word. And so several people have suggested that maybe the best word is the word man. Not in the southern sense of a child talking to their mom, ma'am, yes, ma'am. But the way you might talk to someone respectfully. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. But in whatever sense he's talking to her, he's not super intimate, he's not super distant, he's just being, I think he is being a bit respectful. But he's also being what Carson called a, he's giving her a, a measured rebuke. My hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? You see, his public ministry was just starting and and he seemed to be reluctant to go public enough to gain notoriety. He's trying to manage what's going on. It's almost like he's trying to assemble his team and get his guys on all the same page. And and yet, as we'll see, while the miraculous signs that follow was a blessing to many, the people who understood what really happened was minimal. You see, Jesus blessed a ton of people at this wedding. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. That much wine would have had to be for a lot of people. But the people who really understood, his disciples, his mom, the servants, those are the only ones who really got what happened. And so even with his response, Jesus must have indicated something. Because Mary, in verse 5, goes to the servants and she says, Do whatever he tells you. So John then gives us a little bit of context. He helps us understand a little bit more about what's going on. And he continues in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So in Judaism, being ceremonially clean was super important. In fact, in my morning devotions, I just finished reading through the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus, you'll find time and time again, if you do this, wash And then you will be ceremonially clean in the evening. If you do this blunder, if you do this sin, if you touch that, wash and you'll be clean at the evening. It wasn't an immediate cleansing, but there was a lot of washing and there was a lot of changing clothes and and doing all these things. It was a regular ritual for them. 
You see, what, what ceremonial cleanliness meant is that then they could come and worship. They could come into the tabernacle. They could have fellowship with each other, but also fellowship with God. So these jars being made of stone would be resistant to contamination. They would be considered clean, perpetually clean, and they would just continue to fill them up with water and people would wash their hands in them. They might wash their garments in them. They might wash utensils, but typically these would not be used for serving. It's not like a a giant punch bowl. They would be used for something completely different. And so the story continues, verses 7 through 10 Jesus said to his servant, said to these servants there, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now go draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and says, everyone serves the good wine first. When the, people have had, when the people have drunk freely, and then the poor, poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So somewhere between the time when the servants have filled up the jar, and when, or the, the, the basins, and then they've taken the, the, the liquid to, this, to the master of the ceremony, a miracle happened. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago. Jesus bypassed months of of, of picking, of squashing, of fermenting, all of the process that would go into making wine. In a matter of moments, he did this. And the MC, the Master of Ceremonies, acknowledged that this was the best wine that had been served. I love the translation that Brian read. When they have drunk freely, then you bring them the cheap wine, right? Well, they saved the best for last. And so in this moment of turmoil, Jesus took what could have been a shameful blot on the groom and seemed to bring an added measure of honor by bringing the best here at the end. And then John then concludes this little pericope or the event in Jesus' ministry with something that the that Bible scholars call an inclusio. And so as you're reading through Scripture, if you notice a phrase that is used twice in almost the same way, you might want to understand it as a bracket or, or bookends. And let's pay attention to what's in the middle. Well, John opened this section by saying there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And here in verse 11, he says the same thing. John 2, verse 11. He says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Exactly the same way as he said it in verse 1. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him. See, we learned a, a couple of weeks ago that John handpicked several signs in order to lay out his argument that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember the purpose statement, John 20, verses 30 to 31, that says, Now Jesus did many other signs of the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these specific ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have to keep in mind that John's whole account of Jesus' life is so that we would believe, so that we would have confidence in knowing who Jesus is, that he's not just a good guy, that he's not just a good teacher, but he is the Son of God. 
And by John using the word sign, he does something very interesting. You see, he's, he's indicating that there is miraculous activity going on, but he's not using the same word that the other, other uh, gospel writers have used. You see, a lot of those times when they're talking about signs or miracles, they would use the word dynamis or mighty works like dynamite. Jesus did this mighty work. Or he might use this, they might use this other word, terada, which goes with the word for signs and called signs and wonders. And yet John's not doing that. John's not calling these things miracles. He's not calling them mighty works. He's not calling them signs and wonders. He's simply calling them signs. Don Carson in his commentary makes this statement. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power. Still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And so this first sign has that kind of effect on his disciples. His disciples began to see, wow, this is not just a good teacher. Verse 11 says that they believed in him. You see, these signs would give his followers a glimpse into his glory and his divinity. Remember what we read a few weeks ago in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this first sign revealed a bit of his true nature and resulted in his, in his disciples believing in him. They entrusted themselves to him. And then they went on the road. John chapter 2 verse 12, it says, He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So Jesus and his growing entourage go about 30 miles east to the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. To the town of Capernaum. But in considering this passage, I think it's important for, that we reflect on a couple of things, maybe some more practical elements, because it's one thing to kind of understand the context and kind of understand the story. You have that early conflict and then the, the resolution, and Jesus doesn't just resolve it in, in a way that we could. He does something wonderful with it, beyond what we could imagine. But I think there's a couple of things that we can think of or or really recognize the first is this that jesus addresses our earthly needs he addresses our earthly needs you see there are times when we may feel like the needs or concerns in our lives are too small or mundane to worry or to concern the god of the universe and yet i think jesus ability and his willingness to act in this circumstance communicates that he understands He knew the shame that would befall this family, and he addressed the shame. He covered their shame. Gary Burge, in in his commentary, says this. He says, there's a practical side to the story that we could easily miss, thanks to our zeal to collect some spiritual truth from the passage. Jesus stepped into a wedding of good friends and fixed a simple problem. They were out of wine, and the crisis could prove socially tragic unless a remedy was found. 
And it is easy for us to spiritualize the work of Christ today and conclude that he is only in the business of saving souls and renewing lives. But is he really interested in the commonplace elements of my life? Is he really interested in the simple conundrums of everyday living? Burge suggests that the Cana story says yes. We can invite Christ into dilemmas that seem embarrassingly inconsequential. Dilemmas that seem ridiculously practical and ask him to help. You see, by virtue of the fact that Jesus, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt with us, we, it, I hope it gives us confidence and, and hope that he is aware of the challenges that we face. He understands the shortcomings of being human. He knows what, it li- what it's like when friends betray you. He feels that hurt when loved ones rebel or fall into sinful habits. He understands the annoyance of physical pain. He understands those frustrations that seem to go around in our minds over and over and over again. You see, Mary, Jesus' mother, took a very real problem for the bride and groom and brought it to Jesus. And while this event in Jesus' ministry is not a direct call to prayer, I believe prayer is a practical application. There is nothing that we can't bring to God in prayer. There's an old hymn that speaks to this beautifully. It says, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. Thy wings shall my petition bear to him whose truth and faithfulness engage the waiting soul to bless. And since he bids me seek his face, Believe his word and trust his grace. And get this, I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Beloved, Jesus is aware of and is willing to address our earthly needs. There's nothing too small for us to bring to him. Present them to him in faith. Whether it's small or large, bring them to him for his consideration. And that's kind of why we've changed things up on Wednesday nights in our prayer meeting. Yeah, we're, we're addressing the needs, but we also want to spend some time in worship, honoring God, grateful for all that he is aware of. So I want to encourage you, 7 o'clock Wednesday, if you'd like, we'd love for you to join us here in the sanctuary. But I think in addition to Jesus meeting our earthly needs... Or being addressing our earthly needs. Because the truth is, Jesus isn't always going to meet every earthly need that we have. That would be a fallacy for for me to communicate that. That Jesus is going to cause a miracle or a sign in every circumstance. But he's aware. He will, I believe, he will address our needs. And he may just say, hey, wait. Like he did with the Apostle Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Hang on. But I think we can also clearly see in this passage that Jesus addresses our eternal needs. As we began considering the passage today, I told you about my hand washing problem, right? And as I mentioned, the traditions of Judaism required washing on multiple occasions. They had to continue going. They would work. They would fit really well in my kitchen. And in order to be ceremonially clean, there had to be washing. And this ritual happened over and over and over again. But let's look briefly back at verse 6. 
Because I think John does something here. He gives us a clue because he says this. He says, now there were six stone water jars there. And he could have just moved on, each containing 20 or 30 gallons. But he specifically said, for the Jewish rites of purification. He wants us to pay attention to that. He wants us to know, hey, something's going on here. And maybe it was just so that Jews of that day could say, oh, yeah, I've seen those. I know what those look like. They're about this tall, this wide. They're they're heavy. He could have told us they were just stone jars. And why did John tell us that these were for the Jewish rites of purification? Is he communicating something more? And what's more, the water that had filled those jars for ritualistic purposes had been changed into something completely different. You wouldn't want to wash your clothing in wine, especially red wine. You wouldn't want to wash your utensils or hands. You're going to need to wash it. I would need to wash my hands again if I put it in all that wine. Don Carson in his commentary on John suggests that this event in the chapter along with the the events in the next two chapters because next week we're going to see Jesus cleansing the temple and what he what significance that plays and then the chapter after that Jesus conversation with Nicodemus and then right after that his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well Jesus John in these two chat three chapters is really communicating something to us and Carson summarizes this with the with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 7 I'm sorry, 517, when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So it's almost like John is saying, hey, Jesus is doing something new here. What was used for this is now used for something else. The ritualistic requirements of the old religion have been replaced with the new wine of life in Jesus Christ. And I love what one of the other commentators says in this. We, have, we must keep in mind that the Johannian themes of messianic replacement and abundance. In other words, the way that Jesus comes to fulfill and replace what's going on. Judaism's vessels of purification are now being filled with new things. Or more important, the wine that has already been, I'm sorry, the, the wine that has been served already is exhausted and Jesus new wine is replacing it you have saved the best wine until now is thus the theological statement about jesus and the relative merits of the religious environment that he has come to fulfill jesus perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the law and in him all of the performances of washings and sacrifices have been completed For those who who trust in him, we get to have new life. We get to have abundant life, free from the ritualistic religious pressures. We get to allow his finished work to seal us for eternity with God. And we get to allow his spirit to transform us. He is doing something new in this. But friend, I want to encourage you, if you've not yet trusted Christ... Or believed in Jesus. Maybe today is the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you acknowledge the fact that your performance, my performance, no matter how good we might think we are, will still fall short. I can't wash my hands or my heart enough to gain God's favor. 
that has to be done through Jesus Christ. You see, just like my salmon problem, see, what I realized in the end is that I needed help. I needed another set of hands. I needed Danielle to let my dirty hands hold the fish and her clean hands to salt them. And then I could flip it over. A little teamwork makes the dream work, right? But I think it's, it's, it's a spiritual truth there too. We needed someone else. We can't do it on our own. So that's why Jesus came to fully fulfill all of the things that we are insufficient to accomplish. You and I need Jesus to help us out of our sinful problem. And it is only addressed by faith. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let me encourage you. If you've not yet trusted in him, believe in him today. And so this sign of turning the water into wine met an immediate need for the wedding party. And yet it also demonstrated to Jesus' disciples that he was introducing something new. He is replacing the rituals with a new relationship. And his disciples, I mean, they were, remember, these guys had only known Jesus a matter of four or five days at most. And as a result of this, they believed because they knew that he was something more. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for this for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to consider it together. Lord, we thank you for the new things that you chose to do, the new things that you demonstrated there at the wedding at Cana. How we thank you for the new things that you're doing in us, and we pray that you would help us to walk holy with you. Lord, for those who, who may not yet believe, who may not have yet entrusted their lives to you, God, we pray that you would You will continue to work in their lives, in their hearts. Give them the boldness to, to seek out questions to answers that they're having. Give them the faith to believe, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's providential that we're talking about wedding wine on a day when we also get to celebrate the wine of the Lord's Supper. And not to make too much of my dirty hands, I think there's another element of the sign that we can overlook and that we are all sinful. And in the old sacrificial system, we would have been required to offer sacrifices over and over and over again, just like I would feel like I have to wash my hands over and over and over again. But the new wine of Jesus' blood the new covenant that he instituted with his blood is good once and for all eternity. And so if you're visiting with us, one of the things we tend to do on the first Sunday of the month is celebrate this thing called the Lord's Supper. Some places call it communion. And essentially we're going to, in just a few moments, we're going to take a cup of juice and a piece of bread. The bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross for our sins. You see, the Bible says that the wages of the reward of sin is death. And yet Jesus, who had no sin, did not deserve to die. And yet he willingly broke, allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled 
so that by faith we could have life in him. In him. So I want to invite the elders and uh, Gabriel to come up. We're going to let me pray over this. And then in just a moment, as, as we're going to pass around the elements. I want to just encourage you to, as the elements are being passed, if you're a follower of Christ, um, then this is for you. I want to encourage you to take the cu- a, piece, a cup and a piece of bread and just hold on to it for a few moments. And then um, after everybody has received the, the cup and the bread, then I'll, I'll talk us through taking that together. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, we want you to observe. We want you to pay attention. But we want you to also let the plate pass. Children, I want to encourage you to let your parents or your grandparents guide you in this. If they feel like you're ready, they'll tell you when. Okay? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to observe and to witness what you've done for us. And thank you for the symbol of this bread and this cup. Lord, we thank you for the precious life that Jesus poured out for us. Father, we are in awe that you would demonstrate your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus, you would die for us. Forgive us when we get complacent about our sin. Forgive us when we get complacent about what you've done to address that. But thank you for willingly pouring your life for us. In your holy name, amen.